the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Yeah, that's an amazing sight, that team of transcribers. We have rooms full of people that are there with quills and parchment paper transcribing every word in case I (laughs) accidentally say something brilliant. Good afternoon to you. 505 here on the West Coast, and welcome to this uh, Tuesday, January the 12th edition of Lifeline. Great to have you with us today. Got a pretty jam-packed program. We're going to dive into lots of issues of the day. One of the big things that I kind of uh, predicted may be the case, and we'll see what happens now once the uh, uh, the new Congress gets them into full swing here, and that is whether or not there's a sudden shift uh, toward austerity. This after we have seen phenomenal levels of ballooning of the federal deficit. At least you think it's just COVID-19 related. Oh, no. We have been on a drunken sailor-style spending spree for about the last 20 years, and it's getting deeper and deeper and deeper to the point now where... According to the Congressional Budget Office, and there's two figures out there, but we'll go with theirs for the moment, which is more conservative. The CBO now indicating that the percentage of federal debt held to that of the gross domestic product is 98.2%, meaning we're bringing in as much as we are spending, and that's just for the debt. Now we'll deal with the deficit spending, which is pretty shocking. Bob Zadek will join us tonight as we talk about all these calls for additional relief money, $600 checks coming in, the incoming administration wanting to increase that to uh, $2,000 checks. Even President Trump has said the same. But as, as necessary, perhaps, as that might be for the good of individuals, Is it even practical or possible for the good of the nation? We'll talk about that. Bob Zadek joins us coming up a little bit later on in tonight's program. Um, There is a new rule that has been finalized here in the last uh, several days um, from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services that rescinds some Obama-era regulations that are often considered, well, nothing short of discrimination against faith-based operation organizations. And uh, one of the most notably right here at home, dear friends of ours, Hosanna Holmes, Vern Tyler. We're going to find out exactly what's transpired now as Brad Dacus leads us off. He, of course, is the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. Brad, do we have you? No, we don't. Okay. <laughs> Is he uh, stuck in an airplane somewhere, or what's the deal? We're not sure? Oh, he's not answering the phone. (laughs) All of that, and he's not answering the phone. Okay. He probably noticed my number and decided not to answer the call, I guess. Okay. So uh, what do we do here? We're at seven minutes after the hour. We are anticipating getting Brad Dacus perhaps any moment. Otherwise, I can... I can uh, recite some poetry here. Uh, well, I'll tell you what. While, while we wait to see whether or not we're able to uh, raise the good counselor, I, I do want to um, pause for a moment, if I might, on the heels of what transpired last week and um, share a couple of observations here. Uh, first and foremost, let me acknowledge and recognize that there is a tremendous amount of pain that's being felt in this nation by its people all the way around. I, I, I don't know that anybody, ho- hopefully anybody that is even remotely considered a quote-unquote decent American, that observed what unfolded 
in Washington, D.C. a week ago and had any sense of pride or satisfaction or pleasure with any of that. And if you did take pleasure from watching that, you probably ought to be kicked out of the country. Because historically, fundamentally, that's not who we are. We all so often talk about being a nation of laws, learning how to cooperate with one another, and in the, the, the spirit of that sense of wanting to, to, to bring about some peace in our country. And I, I know maybe some might argue now is not a good time to be calling for, for unity, and, 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 and unity under what set of circumstances might look real odd right now. But for the sake of preserving, protecting, and defending the future of our union, in protecting the republic, we need to really be cautious about our rhetoric, the comments that we make, the, the, the positions that we take based on half-truths, innuendo, rumors, and be mindful that in many respects, this is the, the biggest threat that we've seen to our nation and the peaceful, the historic peaceful manner in which we resolve disputes and create laws and, and, and come and reason together, as Scripture would say. This is the biggest threat that we've faced since the Civil War in the 1860s. And so... I'll say more about this later in the week because we were able to get a hold of Brad Dacus. But I, I just I want to remind people that words have power, words have meaning, and particularly as Christians. You know, we, we, we understand that all of this began, as we see recorded in the book of Genesis, with God speaking. And... Scripture even reminds us that it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out of him, meaning out of his mouth. So be careful and be prudent. Be mindful of the things that you were saying or the rumors that you are repeating. Because we'll get through this, we'll get behind this. But the rate at which we're able to do that and resolve many of these issues, and believe me, they are some powerful, significant issues. We'll talk about one of them when Brian Johnston joins us later on tonight. But we're never going to be able to get those issues addressed and resolved amicably unless we're willing to ratchet down the rhetoric, reason together, and have a dialogue as opposed to a diatribe. Enough on that. Let's turn a corner. We're delighted that Brad Dacus joins us. Brad, just before... um, that little uh, side there, my sidebar, as you would say in the in the the uh, law field, I commented about the recent Department of Health and Human Services new rule, um, which essentially addresses what had been um, a long-standing discrimination, quite frankly, against faith-based adoption agencies. And many here in Northern California are familiar with the great work done by uh, Vern Tyler and Hosanna Holmes and how they were essentially driven out of ministry because they were told, well, you have to provide adoption services for one and all without regard to a family's individual faith-based reasoning or, 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 or religious belief and, and, and faith. And so as a result, whole groups of people have kind of been locked out of the process, sadly. Tell us exactly what's transpired with this um, and, and, and how critically important is it in terms of the restoration of, of religious freedom in America? Well, this is very, very important. The HHS has uh, finalized uh, a rule basically protecting Christian adoption agencies from having to compromise their beliefs and convictions uh, from the uh, Obama-era uh, LGBTQ uh, regulation, which basically was forcing uh, Christian adoption agencies uh, to, in order to be in compliance, to have to be willing to have children uh, adopted out or put in foster care to, um, to homes that were engaging in lifestyles and relationships that were clearly against the, the Bible and, of course, the, the purpose for the even existence of that Christian faith-based adoption agency. Uh, 
or, or for foster care. So this is um, something that should have been done. It's, I'm glad it's been done. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's now a portion of the Code of Federal Regulations. Um, and uh, I, I, I'm hopeful that this will uh, be maintained. And also, I think was out of the determination that the old policy really was a violation of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and, uh, and portions of that. So this was a, a well thought out, very important, and um, we're very pleased to see this as a as a, a, one of the final legacies um, of that of the uh, administration. Of course, what's been problematic about this is that, you know, we, we recognize, especially in states like California, that there has been such a severe shortage of foster families. And what an ideal ministry opportunity it is for a Christian home to, to open their hearts and their home to uh, a young boy or a girl that is coming from challenging circumstances. It may be, you know, an abusive situation, could be a situation in their home life where a parent is dealing with uh, substance abuse, whatever the case might be. They get into the foster care system. The most important thing that they're so desperate for is a sense of stability and some of the best homes that can provide that kind of loving support and stability. Well, if you happen to be a faith-based home, you, you were largely locked out of the process. Yeah, the most qualified statistically were the ones who are being locked out of the process to be able to, to reach out and really provide what these kids need. Uh, kids who are in foster care statistically uh, have, have many things they have to overcome. It, it's very tough. Uh, the stats are, are terrible uh, as a general rule for kids who have to go through foster care. So we need to, uh, to be applaud and help how these ministries uh, do all that they can to give um, meet all the needs that are possible that can be met uh, through a Christian uh, foster agency in a, in a proper home uh, accordingly. So we're, this is a, a definite positive move. Uh, in a way, I'm not surprised because I know uh, that uh, the next seven days we're going to see some other things come out uh, to make the most of shoring up defense of religious freedom. Uh, I can assure you we at Pacific Justice are preparing uh, to um, have to face some uh, reversals of some of these things potentially um, in the, the weeks and months ahead. But uh, we need to, to relish these opportunities, these things when, when they come down that are, that are good, that are responsible, and uh, we're very pleased about that moving forward. Yeah, absolutely some good news here, and we're, we're thrilled to hear, uh, to hear the outcome. There's Brad Dake, his constitutional lawyer, founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. More information available online at pacificjustice.org. That's pacificjustice.org. 517, let's get you updated on some traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. I have uh, predicted, and we'll see here in the coming weeks and months how uh, how accurate those predictions were, uh, that a sense of austerity will suddenly return to Congress uh, and wanting to watch our spending, even as we've added an increase to the federal debt of, frankly, almost a third over the last four years, in spite of the fact of having unprecedented levels of prosperity and um, historically low unemployment numbers and Wall Street, my goodness, phenomenal numbers across the board. I think 2020, by the time the new year was rung in, uh, saw something like a 32 or 34% increase on the Dow. Phenomenal numbers. That said, we have to be mindful that even in the middle of the current pandemic situation and the pain that's being felt by Main Street and many Americans in the wake of the impact of COVID-19, we have been spending like a drunk sailor on leave, as my grandfather used to say. Right now, the current national debt clock stands at $27,784,000,000,000. And I suppose part of the problem is when you get into money that that's serious. It's so mind-boggling, none of us can relate to it. And so, yeah, we'll spend and continue to spend, even as the budget deficit has now reached $3 trillion, which means that annually the federal government spends $3,193,000,000,000 more than what we take in. And when you begin to look at the federal debt as a percentage of the GDP, 
the numbers get even sadder. Let's get some insights now as to what belt tightening may be long overdue as Bob Zadek joins us. Of course, Bob is a best-selling author, syndicated talk show host, one of the most uh, brilliant experts on the topic of the United States Constitution, certainly that I know of. His radio program can be heard locally here in the San Francisco Bay Area every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. on 860 a.m. The Answer. And this topic was, in fact, a, a recent topic heard on his program. And, Bob, it's always an honor and privilege to have you join us. The, these numbers, I suppose, part of the problem is whether you're somebody in Congress or just a guy that mails in the money to the IRS every April 15th, when you start digging into these billions and trillions of dollars, it, it, it's easy for it to all seem like uh, monopoly money, isn't it? Well, it certainly is, and I would call the debt crisis, if that's appropriate label, a, to borrow a medical phrase, it is a silent killer. Mm. A silent killer in the sense that it is killing the country, but it doesn't feel like our country is dying. I go to the theater, well, not now, but uh, in better, in different times, I would go about my life, and I dare say my life and the life of every American, day by day, decisions we make are unaffected by this theoretical number we see on debt clocks and we hear on the news once in a while, but it's not even newsworthy. It doesn't seem to matter. So it is very easy for any American to shrug and say, well, I sort of think intuitively that having debt is bad, but it doesn't seem bad. Everything seems fine. I'm getting raises. I have a, my stock market portfolio seems to be doing okay. My home value, everything is doing okay. So... Where's, so where's the crisis, one would ask? And it is, as I said, therefore, a silent killer. And the only way to talk about the debt crisis uh, is not to talk about the amount of debt. Because is $27 trillion the magic number? Is that like it cannot go higher? What if it was $32 trillion? How would life be different? We've never been there, so nobody knows. Therefore, the discussion of the debt in terms of the amount of the debt as a policy discussion is pointless because nobody seems feels affected by it. It is a more interesting and more sensible conversation to talk about what will it feel like when for Americans when we cross the Rubicon, when we cross the point, when we have too much debt. And that's an interesting conversation. And actually, we've never been there. So it's sort of a guess. We can predict it with some degree of certainty what it will feel like. Inflation, high interest rates. We had high interest rates during the Carter administration when prime rate was 19.5%, as I recall. Mm -hmm. so, So... Craig, the conversation about the amount, $27 trillion, no one can even imagine what $27 trillion means. It's like something is 14 light years away at another planet or a solar body uh, is 16 light years away. You can say, well, it's only two more light years. Well, light years is like forever in distance. But it only is two, two light years. That's kind of a low number. So it's, it's interesting, Craig, to spend our time talking about how we got to the $27 trillion and then what will it feel like when we get to the point that makes it too much. Well, and to your your point with regard to that sense of it being a silent killer or uh, maybe as appropriate, a real and present danger. There's a term we've heard a lot of over the last uh, many days. And, and, and this one, though, is no laughing matter. You know, I think the irony, Bob, is that we've all been raised in a culture and society where debt is generally looked upon as a good thing. We have debts on our homes. We take out loans to buy cars. We have debts on credit cards. When you grow up, they say, well, you know, you, you really 
won't have a credit life unless you have debt. And so the sense of borrowing money, paying it back over time, paying an interest rate, be it, you know, something reasonable up to the average credit card, which is almost, you know, uh, usury rates. You can get a better deal from the mob, you know, the the shark uh, lender down on the street corner than you can from the average bank these days when it comes to credit cards. But that said, where the real seriousness will come if there is a hiccup to the economy that impacts the overnight lending rate and suddenly, you know, payment on a federal deficit of $27 trillion when the prime rate is something like 0 to 0.25 basis points, no big deal. But if we have a significant event and we start to see hyperinflation creep in, and there are very few tools left to the Fed in order to try and control all of that, and suddenly the prime rate starts to creep up out of necessity, and now we find that it's no, no laughing matter in trying to simply continue to pay the interest on that $27 trillion. Now the pain comes in. The real present danger is... What happens to Social Security? What happens to Medicare? What happens to many of the quote-unquote entitlements that Americans are used to or depend upon that suddenly now are significantly at risk because after a while you just can't keep printing money, can you? Yes, you can keep on printing money, but, but it has consequences. You know, Craig, there is a totally undiscussed level of hypocrisy, not that hypocrisy in the political class makes a headline, but there is something fascinating, I find. Traditionally, Republicans now are no more worried about the deficit than are Democrats. But traditionally, it was the Democratic Party that was the tax and spend party, and it was the Republican Party that were more deficit hawks. Now, here's the hypocrisy. When you worry about the deficit, you worry about, and you've heard this phrase often, as I have, those who rail against increasing the deficit talk about the immorality and the unfairness of having future generations pay for our spending. That's the line, and you have heard it dozens of times, as have I. Now, the interesting point is the Democrats traditionally are more uh, focusing policies on the environment. What, is the, what does that mean? Well, one level down in the logical sequence, if you worry about the environment, it's because you don't want to damage the planet for future generations. Have you ever wondered about how could a party be so concerned about having the future generations have a cleaner planet, but an economy that's in shambles? Why would you want to harm future generations in one activity and try to save them in another? If you care about future generations, then you better be all in and care about both the environment and the debt crisis. Because it's the same people you're trying to protect. It's utter hypocrisy, and not one public official that I have ever heard has ever made that rather clear observation and that link. And, of course, the utter irony with that is that, as you say, in, in the effort to try and, and, and preserve the planet, preserve the nation for future generations, what are we going to be handing them? You know, they'll have clean air to breathe. They'll need it because they'll all be sleeping outside because the country will be in such economic chaos that the ability to enjoy a decent wage, buy a home, uh, raise a family is going to be significantly hindered. And, and we haven't even touched on the unknowns. We've already seen what the impact of a largely unanticipated pandemic can do to the economy. Now, what if we Great. mix in something like a major national disaster, like uh, uh, an, a devastating earthquake here on the on the West Coast, or the prospect of war with one of our enemies? I mean, one of those trigger events 
could literally overtip the entire apple cart, Bob, could it not? Well, Craig, I, I wanted to, to appear to kidnap your topic, but I'm really not, as you will see. <laughs> I am very fearful of us conservatives spending too much time talking about the deficit. And here's why. Because there are two ways to fix the deficit problem. One is horrible, and one is just fine. The horrible way, Craig, is simply increased taxation. Well, Craig, if you had our pre-Reagan uh, or pre-Kennedy 91% tax rates on high earners of income, that would be a giant step towards curing the deficit. So is that going to make you very happy? Heck no. Therefore, uh, if you are sincerely talking about the deficit, you are really talking, since you're not talking about taxation, at least I've never heard on your show, you encourage higher taxes. So I will assume that's not a polite conversation on your station. Therefore, if we're not talking about increasing taxes, then there's only one other choice, decrease spending. Now you got it. So any conversation about reducing the deficit, and there should be lots of conversations, is, whether you know it or not, a conversation about reducing spending. So that's really the topic, and that's the healthy conversation. But just to talk about the deficit is to invite higher taxes. And I say, nay, nay, that's not the answer. Well, and moreover, and let me add to this, then we'll take a time out and come back to the conversation. There have been proposals. In fact, there's one that may be making its way through Congress for consideration uh, very shortly because it's being promoted by the president-elect that suggests a significant increase to capital gains taxes. And some people say, oh, yeah, that's right. Capital gains. Let's stick it to these rich people. Not realizing that that doesn't just only impact entrepreneurs, investors, business owners, but you and me, a lot of us outside of our earnings within, say, a traditional IRA or a 401k may have a little bit of money invested aside. We're saving up to buy a home, put kids through college, whatever it might be. And those types of, of normal investments um, in, in relationship to, uh, you know, be it your mutual funds or equities or, or individual stocks, whatever, are all subject to capital gains taxes. Likewise, the sale of a home is subject to capital gains taxes. So suddenly now, what we're saying is Washington, D.C. keeps spending like a drunken sailor, and the answer to resolve the problem is to bring in more money. We spend too much, let's bring in more money. But that is going to come right out of your pocket, my pocket, and at the end of the day, the sense of the reality of the pain of the numbers will really come home to roost. Maybe none of us can, practically speaking, relate to a $27 trillion deficit, but could you relate to having to send the IRS $10,000 more out of your earnings every year? Better be prepared, because that could happen. So, as Bob Apley points out, the real place where the conversation needs to be is a subject matter that no politician likes to talk about, and that is, where can we tighten the belts? We'll talk about that next. Bob Zadek, syndicated talk show host, best-selling author. By the way, you can catch his broadcast here in the San Francisco Bay Area Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m. The Answer. Bob has um, not only back copies of broadcast podcasts available to you other resources including his books available online by going to his website check him out at bobzadek.com that's b-o-b-z-a-d-e-k.com time out and update back with more with bob zadek and now back to lifeline with craig roberts uh, a couple of weeks ago, which I now seems uh, perhaps like a couple of years ago, um, the the president, in talking about the um, the aid package, the COVID relief package, um, asked for a couple of things. One was an increase from the six hundred dollars uh, to $2,000. And then in the process, um, he, he talked about a lot of the additional pork barrel spending that had been incorporated into the bill. 
And, you know, I, my, my thought at the time was, where was this conversation four years ago? Because the, the one thing that it highlighted is that we tend to see important measures put together and then all of a sudden it goes to conference and everybody wants to kind of add in their own two cents. And, you know, bringing home the bacon I get is how members of Congress get elected and reelected and elected again and again and again. The problem with all of this is that with, without any sense of, of, of knowing what it's like to tighten our belt, as Bob Zadek pointed out just before the break, you know, it's going to have to budge and come from somewhere. And if we don't, if we don't manage our spending, then the only other option left to us is increase the income, which means that's coming out of your pocket and my pocket. But, Bob, how do we go about sitting down and having a serious conversation about the billions of dollars that is wasted at the state and federal level on programs and nonsense that, quite frankly, most average Americans, if we sat down with a budget, we would we would take the line, the so-called line item veto and make probably half of this stuff go away. How do we get that dialogue started? Well, Craig, uh, you inadvertently or advertently asked 10 questions in that one well-composed sentence. First of all, you mentioned state and federal. Well, let's, those are two different conversations, uh, because in theory, at least, state and local governments cannot operate in a deficit. Now, they cook the books, and they do things that are pretty close to dishonest, and they have the benefit of governmental accounting, which is not gap accounting, which is not a normal accounting. So let's use that. Invite me back in a month or two, we can talk about that. But let's now spoke, speak about the federal level, which is different because the feds can print money. States and localities cannot print money, at least not directly. They can't print money. Okay, so how do we cut spending? Ashley Craig, in our recent memory, about a decade ago, not that long, we saw the perfect way to cut spending. I am referring to sequestration. Obama, when he was up against a very aggressive, uh, low-spending or lower-spending Republican legislature, they were at loggerheads because they had spending problems and couldn't find the money. And they were up against a debt ceiling, uh, which is a statute. And what they did is they did the only solution that's at all possible, and it still is good today, they said, okay, we cannot pick one program because there is some special interest group that will be up on Capitol Hill fighting, don't cut our program. Well, the only way to do it is if every single program in the government, just like sequestration, gets cut by, let's say, 10%. Now, if you do that, then the farmers can't yell why are you cutting our program? Well, we're also cutting program for rent supports, and we're also cutting program for something else, and we're cutting program for parks, so you can't complain. Nobody can complain because they'd be having to ask, treat us specially, and that will be found to be offensive. So the way to do it is if Congress says, for the national good, let's cut spending across the board. Now, the defense is going to be up and down. Wait a minute. We're going to be exposed. And the answer is there is so much waste that they will find the 10% savings, if that's the number, without compromising the effectiveness of our defense forces. And remember, we had sequestration in 2011, and after Obama's trick of closing the national monuments and closing the parks and trying to punish the people, that didn't work and that was exposed. It was fine. And nothing felt any differently during sequestration except the spending went down. Just like nothing feels differently when the spending goes up except it's a silent killer. If we do the same thing in reverse and across the board, no exceptions whatever, cut spending by some number, let's say 10%, and every single year spending goes down by 10% over it was the prior year, or it just doesn't go up, 
which is the same thing because the economy is going to grow. The budget deficit will go down. Nothing will feel differently, and nobody will have the political clout to complain because they'd be saying, we want to be undemocratic. We are not going to be in the program, so do not cut our program. They will be publicly shamed, and they will lose their political power. So there, Craig, headlines, please, because I've just solved the deficit problem. <laughs> and you know, it's, it's a pretty straightforward approach. Now, as I recall, back when this was done in 2011, 12, 13, somewhere along that, that uh, arena, there were, 2011, okay, there were some programs that were exempt, were there not? Was not Social Security and, uh, and Medicare uh, or Medicaid Social exempt Security from it? Not a spending program because it's theoretically self-funded. Um, ah, okay. But the answer is yes. But remember, nobody, everybody felt, nobody felt harmed. Nobody felt singled out. There was a one group that was complaining. And what happened was it was a bluff because Obama thought he proposed it and the Republicans would back off. But they didn't. And so it was, it was a bluff on both sides and neither side blinked. And we had Two years, I think it was about two years, when everything was just fine and spending went down. Thought it, Craig, it worked. So there, we, that's an answer, not that I invented. Congress, of all people, Congress and the president invented it. But to their great dismay, it worked. And you know what? It, it, is, it is fair. It provides parity of pain across the board so that no one group can, can claim that they've been singled out. And, you know, there are all times, we've all gone through it when there is a reduction in maybe, you know, your, your, your spouse has lost her job, the company's shut down, they've done, uh, you know, staff reductions, whatever. We've had to, to readjust our family spending and family finances because of a change in the income levels. And it's never fun. It's always painful. But we managed to make it work. And we make it happen. And I think uh, the, the notion of revisiting that that sense of sequestration, not necessarily outright austerity, which is a, a, a topic for another conversation, but at least an opportunity to say, look, we need to start taking this seriously. At no point have we, with the exception of the 2008 economic downturn, really looked at our spending seriously. And so if we can't come to an answer as to what programs get cut, Easy. Everything across the board. Check out more information. Bob's program Sunday mornings, 8 a.m. here in the San Francisco Bay Area on 860 a.m. His website. You'll find his books. You'll find lists of shows, podcasts, all kinds of great resources uh, right there at bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. Our thanks to Bob Zadek for a look at... The coming budget battles, oh, they'll be coming to a Congress near you, guaranteed. All right, let's pause, get you an update on traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We are approaching a tragic anniversary here, 22nd of January will be the anniversary of the Roe versus Wade decision 48 years ago and in the ensuing almost five decades now more than 60 million children have been aborted that's almost twice the population of the entire state of California 60 million children that have been aborted since 1973 and much of the dialogue surrounds Roe versus Wade, and, and to be sure, we've made, made great strides in reduction of abortion, although a recent report came out indicating that while we've seen a pretty significant decrease in abortion over recent years, there's also been an uptick in the use of um, abortifacients like RU486. So we're winning, and yet the challenges are still there to, to protect life. The big question is, what about the future? of Roe versus Wade. And there's been all kinds of debate about Supreme Court taking up cases and uh, now with a, a paradigm shift that's occurred within 
the percentage of conservatives on the high court were perhaps poised at the best position we have in 48 years to see a, a change come about. The big question now, even as a new administration rolls in that will no doubt roll back a lot of the, the um, positive strides that we've made over the last four years, the big issue comes down to really understanding what it is we're up against and what Roe created. And as my next guest suggests, trying to understand the implications of Roe is a bit of a foolish undertaking because there's many aspects of which even the greatest legal minds on the planet that understand the Constitution backwards and forwards have often struggled to try and sort of articulate exactly. We know what Roe did. Trying to understand why and how it was done, there lies the big challenge. And Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee, joins us. By the way, you can catch Brian's program, Life Matters, every Saturday morning at 11 a.m. right here on KFAX. And Brian, we don't don't want to let too much of the cat out of the bag here yet, uh, but we will tell listeners that you have been uh, uh, quietly working on a book for some time now, and it is due to be released in, uh, in just a couple of months. The title is The Evil Twins, Roe and Doe, How the Supreme Court Unleashed Medical Killing. And what's ironic about this is I think most pro-life people can tell you about Roe versus Wade, but they know nothing about Doe versus Bolton, which in many respects, as you indicate, absent that, the landscape of abortion in America might look very different. Tell us more. Yes, Craig, that's right. And I'm comfortable in stating what you said, and that is you cannot explain Roe versus Wade. Some people assert they can, but the best attorneys, and that includes Supreme Court justices like Sandra Day O'Connor, she explicitly said in her Akron dissent that Roe versus Wade cannot be supported, has no foundation in law or logic. It's on a collision course with itself. But, of course, she leaned pro-life. But you need to know that Alan Dershowitz, uh, Cass Sunstein, very, very prominent lefties, but even uh, progressive uh, Professor Lawrence Tribe, he often had been mentioned. We're going to see his name again. Lawrence Tribe was mentioned for the Supreme Court far, far left. But let me quote him. One of the most curious things about Roe is that behind its own verbal smokescreen, the substantive judgment on which it rests is nowhere to be found. Now, that's kind of amazing, isn't it? But let me go one step further. As you know, at the Supreme Court level, the clerks are very important, and they help the justices as they write these decisions. Edward Lazarus is a lefty Democrat. He worked as a law clerk for black men at that time. We're going to see him probably again in the new administration. But Edward Lazarus said that he loved Justice Blackman like a father, but, and I quote, as a matter of constitutional interpretation and judicial method, Justice Blackman's opinion provides essentially no reasoning in support of its holding. And in the almost 30 years, so this was written a few years ago, in the almost 30 years since Roe's announcement, no one has produced a convincing defense of Roe on its own terms. So then we have to ask, well, what? And how do we get all these abortions? It's because no one talks about the twin decision. It came down the same day. Roe dealt with the laws of Texas. Doe versus Bolton addressed the laws of Georgia. And in Doe, that's where Blackman cleaned up the mess. That's where he clarified what his real goal was. By the way, if you actually read Roe, and I will include in the book, not enough time right now, but in Roe, he's explicit. He does not grant a woman the right to choose. In Roe versus Wade, it says that. In Roe versus Wade, he says, I do not grant a woman the right to do with her body whatever she wants. I explicitly do not do that. Well, why do the feminists and the pro board say that they do that? You're going to find out in a second. And really, the person who explained it best was Ruth Bader Ginsburg. This is what she said about it. Quote, the actual decision is about a doctor's freedom to, pra- to practice his profession as he thinks best. It wasn't woman-centered. 
It was physician-centered, and that is entirely what Doe versus Bolton is about. Roe v. Wade meanders very confusedly, as all the people on the right and the left will say, this does not make sense. So Roe v. Wade talks about pregnancy. Roe v. Wade talks about abortion. But it doesn't make sense. And he even later, in his notes, he admitted that it was an arbitrary standard, the trimester system. He just had to have something. So it was arbitrary. In Doe versus Bolton, he cleaned it up. He basically said it's entirely the decision of the physician. If in his mind an abortion is called for, and as we've talked about, we've mentioned this before, everyone thinks it's about life of the mother. No, no. He said it's the life of the health. And by health, and Blackman defined health as being psychological, emotional, sociological. But it's according to the opinion, not of the woman. The woman can ask, but it's up to the doctor. And whatever is in his mind, it's in the mind of the doctor. That's why leftists don't like Roe, like Ruth Bader Ginsburg. They like the result, but they don't like the basis. And the basis is basically this. I authorize doctors to kill according to their own judgment. That's very quick summation, but that's what Doe versus Bolton does in order to clean up the mess that he had created in Rome, the meandering discussion of pregnancy and limitations, and sometimes you can and other times you can't. He cleaned it up by empowering doctors to kill. You know, what's what's thoroughly surprising about this, too, is that, you know, we've often, and as I've had this discussion with with constitutional scholars of the Roe versus Wade kind of turning on this pivotal notion of the due process clause of the 14th Amendment and how do you extrapolate out of that a right to privacy that now leads to a woman's right to have an abortion. And what you're suggesting is that kind of opened the door, but 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 or or, or cracked crack the window open. Better put that cracked the window open. What really opened up the the floodgates, the door to unfettered abortion in this country was not what transpired in Texas, but rather the Georgia law that was struck down in Doe v. Bolton. That, as you suggest, suddenly empowered not the woman, but empowered the doctor that in his or her opinion, based on the quote-unquote health of the woman, and I'm using my air quotes here, nobody can see them, but (laughs) I'm using my air quotes, that the health of the woman and the redefining of same is what essentially then permitted the doctors the right to act on the request coming from the woman. So really then, the entire discussion that has been for the last 48 years been on Roe versus Wade really should have been looking at Dovey Bolton. People understand that. They don't realize doctors are authorized to kill if they feel good about it. And that's what we're looking at. You know, in a physician's assisted suicide, as we talked about, if you look at the decision of physician assisted suicide, it doesn't give you any rights. You can ask. Well, would you just kill me, Doc? Please just kill me. I can't handle my illness, my emotion, whatever it is. Well, you have the right to ask, but, well, that doctor can say, well, Craig, you know, I, I don't think so right now. Let's, let's go, let's give you some meds. Let's do this. Let's get you some counseling. What a physician-assisted suicide law does is it gives the physician ultimate authority. Not you. Your only right is to be dead. That's the only right granted, but it gives now, with clarity, it's up to them. They can kill you if they want, or if they don't want, eh, they don't have to. It's up to them. All authority is in the hands of the killing physician, and it's a deceitful thing to say, oh, it gives people the right to die. Well, there is no right to die. You're going to die. But you can't, under the law, do it whenever you want. You have to get special authority and permission from a killing doctor. And a killing doctor arguably could say, you know, I don't think so. In your case, I'm not going to do it. So you don't have any rights. It is the right of the physician under the law now. And up until 1973, Western civilization never approved of medical killing. Up until 1973, and we did have it happen in Western civilization. And we put that nation under the law 
at the number of medical trials because medicine was used to kill in Germany and at the discretion of the killing doctor. And that violates the very heart of medicine and the very heart of Western civilization. So we're living in the repercussion and the flotsam and jetsam, what's left of the decision in Roe and Doe v. Bolton. Doe v. Bolton is the deadly bullet. Doe v. Bolton is the sword that has cut now through the heart of medicine. Medicine no longer has to really hold you as dear. Up until 73, the doctor swore he would always care for He would, If he couldn't cure, he would come for it. But he'd never kill a patient. That ended with Doe versus Bolton. And unless you read and understand that, you'll get caught up in thinking, well, this is about pregnancy. You know, this is a pregnancy debate. What, what time in pregnancy? What about this? What if there's this situation? And you'll get caught up that, no, pregnancy is merely the circumstances that Roe outlined. It was the power that the Supreme Court authorized in Doe that created and certainly, the license. And certainly... And- and, and understanding that subtlety, I think, is critically important because as we endeavor to try and want to see changes come about and address the the extreme moral failures of decisions like Roe versus Wade that ironically was issued the same date, two different cases, two different states, both decisions handed down on the same date, January 22 of 1973, one, though, having more significant impact than the other. And this is going to be a bit of a uh, an onion to peel back, because when we get into issues concerning, uh, you know, suicide and, uh, quote-unquote, death with dignity, you begin to uh, understand that it wasn't just a decision that opened the floodgates for abortion in America, but fundamentally changed medicine in our nation that has had a reverberation at multiple levels impacting multiple layers of life from the cradle to the grave. All outlined inside the pages of a new book that will be released in April called The Evil Twins, Doe and Roe, Roe and Doe, How the Supreme Court Unleashed Medical Killing. And uh, we'll get a chance to bring Brian on for an in-depth conversation. We'll just kind of give you a little bit of a, a tease here tonight as we're heading up on the uh, the anniversary of Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton coming up on the uh, 22nd of this month. All right. Well, again, our thanks to Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director of the National Right to Life Committee, host of Life Matters, Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. here on KFAX. Details available on the web at CaliforniaProLife.org. That's CaliforniaProLife.org. All right. It's not 6. It's not 6.15. It's just somewhere in between. So let's get you a look at traffic. <laughs> 